Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In the last episode, we saw a changing of the guard. Isaac and Rebecca assume Abraham and Sarah's roles as the chief patriarch and matriarch throughout the narrative. In Genesis chapter 25, Abraham dies and we are told he leaves his inheritance to Isaac, the son of the promise. Let's read on now from chapter 25 verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanoch, Abida and Eldar. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man full of years, he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Neboth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages, by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So Isaac and Rebekah dwell at Beer Lahai Roy, that is, the well of the living one who sees, while everyone else heads eastward to the east country, that is, back to the tribal rivalries of their homeland in Babylon. Even Ishmael is consumed with mimetic rivalry as he engages in rivalry with Egypt, Assyria, and the rest of his kinsmen who dwell around him. Yet, for all their history, Isaac and Ishmael bury their father Abraham together. You may recall that Ishmael and Isaac's mothers, Hagar and Sarah, engaged in a bitter rivalry with one another. We might expect Isaac and Ishmael to continue this rivalry, especially because Ishmael is described as a wild donkey of a man who lives in rivalry with all his brethren around him. I think this piece testifies to Isaac's non-mimetic lifestyle. Isaac has mastered the art of living peacefully with everyone, even Ishmael, who imitates Isaac's non-mimetic lifestyle back to him. 
As the two brothers treat each other with kindness, respect, and loyalty, they lay aside the rivalries of their mothers and bury their father together. This is an important lesson here. If we are kind and respectful to others, they will imitate our behavior, which allows us to live in peace with one another, even those who are completely consumed with mimetic rivalry. Let's read on now from verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a complete man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? So Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Much like Abraham and Sarah before them, Isaac and Rebekah have difficulty conceiving a child. Only after Isaac prays to the Lord are they able to conceive twins. The idea here appears to be that the blessing and inheritance promised to Abraham is no natural gifting or coincidence, but rather a blessing that comes from the Lord. Notice also that the twins struggle against one another within the womb. The verb used to describe this struggle is commonly used within the Bible to describe a political leader's oppression of an enemy people. When Rebecca seeks an explanation from the Lord, we are told that inside her womb are two enemy brothers who will become rival nations. They are fighting for political dominance. We are told that the older will serve the younger. This comment reminds us of the curse of Ham back in Genesis chapter 9, when Canaan is told that he will be the lowliest of servants to his brothers. As we discussed in that podcast, this rhetoric was a way of denigrating the inhabitants of Canaan while elevating the social status of Shem, Israel's ancient ancestor. 
Now in chapter 5, we are told that Rebecca's younger son will enjoy political dominance over his older sibling. In other words, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, will enjoy political dominance over their enemies, their enemy brothers, if you like, the descendants of Esau, the people of Edom. Now, there's a lot of wordplay in this narrative. Let's start by considering Rebecca's eldest son, Esau, was completely covered with hair. The word hair in Hebrew is siah, which sounds a lot like the primary place of residence of Esau's descendants, the Edomites, Mount Seir. So this idea that Esau is hairy, a hairy man, makes us think of Mount Seir, where the Edomites live. Also, we're told that he was completely red. Now, the Hebrew word for red, Adom, sounds very much like the name Edom, who are Esau's descendants. So this wordplay of Esau being completely red, desiring red stew and being completely hairy, make us think of this people group, the Edomites. Esau is born with his younger brother clutching his heel. For this reason, Rebekah's youngest son is given the name Jacob, which is literally translated as the one who clutches at the heel, a Hebrew idiom describing a trickster. While Esau grows up to become a skillful hunter, a man of the field, Jacob is described as a complete man who stays at home. This word tam, which is often translated in English Bibles, as, in this passage anyway, as quiet, is actually the word complete or whole. And it's the same word that's used to describe Jacob's ancestors, Abraham and Noah. It's an interesting concept for us to consider. This idea that the trickster, the crafty, conniving person is also described as a complete and upright person. To our minds, this trickery and deceit just doesn't seem righteous, but that's exactly how Jacob is described. There's this idea throughout the Hebrew Bible of the trickster, the, the person who's actually the underdog, who uses some crafty means to outsmart his rivals so that he can gain the upper hand. You see, this underdog, this trickster, doesn't have military might. He doesn't have the means by which to defend himself or to return violence upon his attacker, the person who's oppressing him. So this trickster is very clever in the way he deals with the oppressor. He actually subverts their violent actions, their oppression back towards them. And we'll see Jacob do exactly that in this passage. Rather than seeking to engage in mimetic rivalry with others, Jacob remains at home in his tent. In contrast, his brother Esau is a skillful hunter, which reminds us of Nimrod, an ancient mighty man of renown who founded Babylon. So Esau appears to represent the tribal rivalries of Babylon, while Jacob will follow in the footsteps of Israel's non-mimetic patriarchs, Abraham and Noah. 
He is the complete man who reflects the divine image and continues God's creative work in the world. We're told that Rebekah, the female Abraham, loves Jacob, but Isaac loves the food which Esau hunts and brings to him. Thinking about this a little bit allegorically, Isaac loves the spoil of mimetic rivalry which Esau brings home to him after a day in the field. In this way, Isaac encourages and in a way passively participates in Esau's violent actions. If he goes out and commits violence against others, other people, then Isaac is behind him all the way and he enjoys that side of Esau. He enjoys the spoil of Esau's violent actions. And this is important for us to recognize when we condone or we reap the benefits of the violence of others, even though we're not technically the perpetrator of that violence, we are playing a role in keeping that violence in circulation. When we reap the benefits of the oppressed other, then we also are oppressing them and feeding the system which keeps the oppression of the victim in circulation. Meanwhile, Rebecca prefers the non-mimetic lifestyle of Jacob. She prefers this complete person who remains home and does not seek out violence and to engage in rivalry with others to obtain objects of worth and value. As we read on in the narrative, Esau returns home, famished from his day of engaging in mimetic rivalry with others out in the field, and asks Jacob for some of his red lentil stew. Esau has his own food, premium grade meats, which he just caught out in the field and he brought home. Esau brings home the very food that his father Isaac loves and desires. But for some reason, Esau doesn't want this food. He doesn't want the best of his spoils that he's brought home. Why? Because that's how mimetic rivalry works. The spoils of Esau's day in the field fail to satisfy him, just as any object of mimetic rivalry, any mimetic idol that we choose to hunger and thirst after will always fail to satisfy us. So Esau looks for another idol, another coveted object to set his sights upon in the hope that that object will satisfy his hunger. As he returns home, Esau sees Jacob's stew. Now what's so special about Jacob's stew? Nothing, it's boring, it's vegetables, it's lentils. Esau has the prime food, but the thing about Jacob's stew is it's Jacob's stew. Jacob owns it. It's something which Esau doesn't have. And so Esau sees Jacob with his stew and he desires the stew, even though it's not as much of a delicacy or special or valuable to others. Esau desires that stew because he can't have it. He thinks that maybe, just maybe that stew will make him whole and complete. Remember we're told that Jacob is the whole complete man? Maybe Esau desires to be that also. And so he sees this stew which Jacob eats and thinks if he can eat that stew too, then he can become whole and complete like Jacob. Esau's desire for the stew and desire to become whole and complete like Jacob is so strong 
that Esau believes he's going to die if he can't get Jacob's stew. So Esau forcefully demands Jacob to give him the stew. He is forceful and violent with him, just like he has been all day out in the field with others and with the animals he's come in contact with. This is Esau's way. Esau is big and strong. He uses his strength and power to manipulate Jacob, to force him to do what he doesn't want to. Remember, this is not just a story about two random brothers. This is really a story about the people of Edom lording and ruling forcefully over the people of Israel. How will the people of Israel, that is Jacob's descendants, respond? In the Genesis narrative, Jacob, the trickster, knows exactly what to do. Jacob subverts Esau's forceful, violent request and uses it to his own advantage. Knowing that Esau's desire is firmly and solely fixed upon the stew, Jacob exploits this desire. Jacob turns to Esau and says, Oh yeah, well, I see why you want this stew. It's, it's great. It's everything you need. It's everything your heart desires. But, you know, it's very precious to me. Maybe for me to give it up, I need something from you. I need something precious from you also. Perhaps you can give me your birthright in exchange for the stew. Because Esau already has possession of his birthright and it hasn't made him complete or whole, Esau despises the birthright and gives it up to Jacob in exchange for the stew in the hope that the stew will complete Esau just as it has completed Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob obtains possession of the object he desires, his brother's birthright. So this is the theme of the trickster, the person who subverts and manipulates the violence and desire of those who lord it over them, rather than mirroring the exact same violence back in their face. Exchanging violence for violence only keeps the violence in circulation as it grows and amplifies with each reciprocal exchange. This other way, the way of the trickster, subverts the oppressor's violence and desire and uses it against them. In so doing, Jacob lays hold of his brother's birthright as the two brothers become bitter rivals. We'll see this rivalry grow and threaten to destroy both of them throughout the following chapters, which we will explore in future episodes. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.